Hello, it's episode four of Toby Haydoke's Who's Round. I am that person. So insignificant to the history of Doctor Who that I wasn't even asked to be in Zagreus. It wasn't all plain sailing getting to this week's interviewee, so whilst I was cursing my luck, I actually recorded this episode's preamble on location. A first for Who's Round. Now obviously, because of scheduling, the me that you're about to hear uh, out there on location was actually played by a double in long shot. I'm about to, I say I'm about to, I'm hoping to get to my next victim. But uh, this is the measure of what I had to do. Up at eight, uh, travelled to Waterloo, then got on another train that I then had to get off because something went wrong with the line. And now I'm waiting for a bus. Uh, and hopefully I still will just about be on time uh, for a victim is an appropriate word, a perfect victim. Uh who I will be interviewing about his four episodes of Doctor Who, should I get there. At the moment, though, somebody has made a sacrifice to the rain god, but clearly not to the train god, and certainly not the bus god. So I'm standing at a bus stop, getting rained on, but hoping that soon all this misery will be eclipsed when I meet uh, uh, my interviewee. And so hopefully the next voice you hear will be a slightly more cheerful me asking him to introduce himself. Although, (laughs) I I fluffed then, but uh, the way things are going, he might well have to interview himself. Uh, Or I could just hope that one of the other miserable people at this bus stop was, was, I don't know, a tetrap. Let's hope so. I have my next victim on the slab. I don't have an obsidian blade, but I do have an iPhone. So who are you and why am I talking to you about Doctor Who? Well, my name is Ian Cullen. And uh, many, many years ago, 1964, in fact, I was in uh, a Doctor Who series called Doctor Who and the Aztecs with William Hartnell. And I played Ixter, the Aztec, who was actually Bill Russell's opponent. And we ended up with a huge fight to the death, which I lost now that was as you say that was 63 and we're now in uh, 60, sorry, 64 sorry and Doctor Who started in 63 we're now in 2013 so Doctor Who is 50 years old this year so the Aztecs is 49 and you're in your 50th year in the business is that right? Well not, not, not strictly no I don't want to tell you how long I've been in it but I actually started uh, acting as a boy actor in 1952 my first professional job was playing a little, uh, Tiny Tim in uh, Christmas Carol and then my next job was playing the Winslow boy, Ronnie Winslow, opposite uh, Sir Frank Finlay, who was uh, then Frank Finlay, uh, before he went to RADA. So it's a long time ago. <laughs> and so, uh, and yet you're still you're still working uh, all these years later. Did you did you so did you um, having started as a kid? Did you jump over drama school, or did you then go to drama school having done child acting? I went to RADA, which you could do in those days. Um, I got a scholarship to RADA when I was sixteen. I'd been by that time. I'd been working professionally for four years. Um, I went to RADA and stayed there for two years, and uh, then um, after that went back into repertory, 
and Royal Shakespeare Company, West End, in television, um, in that sort of order. And not to be sniffed at the fact that you're... you're was, is there anybody from your class at RADA that, uh, that is still working? That's a terrible question. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Uh, there, there certainly are. John Carlyle, I think, was there. Uh, he's, he's, he's an actor who's working. But I get a bit, to be, to be truthful, I get a bit muddled up between things like the Royal Shakespeare Company, where there were lots of us, and Zed Cars, which every actor in the world was in, and Rada, I'm, I'm inclined to sort of get confused about who was there, and or did I meet them later? <laughs> but what we're saying is basically it's not to be sniffed at that you're still, you're still working in a, in a notoriously fickle business, and yet what I've come to talk to you about is four episodes of Doctor Who in 1964. I'm sure I'm not the first person that's talked to you about it, but um, can you see why it is that uh, it still follows you around? I'm very pleased that it does. I mean, I think it's great being a, a Doctor Who um, aficionado, whatever, if that's the right word. But it's, it's a wonderful thing to be uh, because it's, it does follow me around. And uh, I think the reason, I, I, I mean, quite why the Aztecs is so successful, uh, it, I shouldn't think it must just come down to the story. It was a great story. There was a super cast, a very strong cast, uh, John, John Ringham, uh, Walter Randall, Keith Pyatt, a very strong cast uh, indeed, apart from the regulars, of course, and a very, very strong story, and uh, it was very fast-moving. So I think it must have just entertained children, and they remembered it, and they carried on, and now they're telling their grandchildren about it. <laughs> and I assume because you did the DVD and things like that, you've, you've, you've seen it since, and do, do you think it holds up? I, th I watched it last about, there was a, a, a re-release of the DVD and I watched it then about two years ago or three years ago and uh, yes, I thought it held up. I mean, it brought back some funny memories because I was convinced it was in colour. That was one of the things that um, I'd forgotten because, because the, the, the production was so colourful. Uh, I'm sure people are aware of this, but in, in, in the days of black and white television, if you were doing a costume drama, the colours had to be extra strong. The reds had to be very red and the blues very blue and the greens very green. So you got lovely shades of grey in the black and white image. If you watch a black and white film, it's actually grey and white. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, all sorts of lovely <coughs> shades. And my, my vivid memory of Doctor Who and the Aztecs is how brilliant the costumes were. Gold and silver and very, very lavish costumes. Wonderful headdresses. But I remember the colour. That's what I remember most. And it was the only full story, he'd done a single episode uh, of a previous story, it was the only full story directed by John Crockett, who was never interviewed about his time on Doctor Who, and he's got a, a great visual style. Do you remember him, the director? I remember, I remember him very well, yeah, he was, he was, I mean, he was a great guy, he was a very big man, very tall, by that I mean, I think he was about six or three or four, and, 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 and broad with it. He wasn't fat, but he was very big, and uh, very gentle, and... Very precise. He knew exactly what he wanted, and I think that's one of the that's possibly again one of the reasons why uh, it holds up so well, because there's no spare no spare footage. It's very very tightly edited and put together. Uh, but I, I remember as being very gentle. I mean, and he gave me the job, which was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd done was it kidnapped? You'd done the year before, so you'd had a TV lead. That's right, kidnapped and Katrina, in which I played David Balfour. That was uh, twelve or thirteen episodes. Um, which we filmed up in Scotland, mostly filmed in Scotland. Uh, some of the interiors shot at Ealing, but it was an all-on-film series, which in those days was, it was unusual. 
because film was expensive and uh, I think the director must have insisted. Because, well, I th or possibly because uh, one of the things about the old television world was that if you had film and studio, they didn't cut together terribly well. You could always tell when you were watching that that was studio and that was film. And I think possibly because so much of Kidnap was running around in the heather and in the, in, in the open air, the director went for and got permission to just do the whole thing on film. Uh, so we didn't get that funny cutting into a studio for the interiors. And it, I, I don't know why it disappeared. It disappeared without trace, really, but it was rather a good series with uh, lovely Gay Hamilton playing Katrina. And, well, did because uh, we, we talked just before we started recording about the, the, the sort of fickle nature of acting and that we all sign up and say, well, we know it's going to be a difficult business. But it seems to actors now that there was so much television then that how on earth didn't all actors always work on television all the time? But when you read accounts of acting in the 60s, actually breaking into television was actually was quite difficult. Breaking in was very difficult. Uh, but also, don't forget that there was all the repertory then. Every, every, almost every town, even small towns, had its little professional theatre, repertory company. Uh, and that's where actors went. That's where they trained and learned their jobs. But it was, it was very difficult for an actor who was working in the provinces in repertory to actually get to London. And there was no hope of getting into television unless you got to London. Um, I was very, very fortunate because uh, I was working at Oldham Rep, the Coliseum Theatre in Oldham. And I got a phone call from the the girlfriend of a friend of mine, an actor friend of mine I'd met in repertory at Ipswich, Bob Gillespie, and Rosemary Hill was his girlfriend, and she was producing a television play. I looked this up, and I've actually forgotten. It was a Plautus play, but I can't remember the title. But she, I got a phone call while I was at Oldham Rep saying, could I go to London and play this part in this Plautus play television? Because I was very excited, and the director of the theatre was very excited. He let me go. He released me for a week, which was great. And I went off to London and played this part, um, again, can't remember the name of the character. But uh, at the end of the run, I asked the producer why, why on earth she'd bothered to get me out of Oldham Rep to play a small part. He said, well, I wanted to put into the credits Ian Cullen appears by permission of the Coliseum Oldham. And that was why I got my first television, because I was actually working at the Coliseum and did a Roman play. It's, it's not what you know, it's what buildings you're working in at the time. <laughs> I always used to like it when they'd say at the end of something, Stephen Moore is a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. They don't seem to do that anymore on television and radio. Um, but uh, the other thing about breaking into television is, is, is it not the case that actors in those days were trained for the stage and you had to adapt your, your sort of acting technique that you'd learnt to a very different medium and, and some were more successful than others, would you say? Well, yes, there, there is uh, there's some truth in that, but I, I think the, um, um, the, there is a misconception about acting, which uh, if, you're, if you're acting for the stage or film or television, it's all the same. If, you're a, if you can act, if you're a good actor, then what you're doing is trying to give a truthful performance, and whether you're on film, television, or stage, it's just a question of scale. Whether you're playing in a 2,000-seat theatre or whether you're playing in a little studio theatre, it's the same sort of thing. You have to adjust your performance, but it doesn't actually alter the integrity of acting. Now, having said that, there were, because of the repertory and because of stage training, there were an awful lot of what you might call stagey actors, actor laddies, we used to call them, and, and they, were, they were more performers than actors. It was a, different, it was a slightly different art. And there were Sir Donald Wolfitt sort of typifies it. I mean, they, they, they were 
bigger, bigger, larger than life actors, and they went went around talking like that, and they gestured large, and they went to a party, and they held court, and that sort of person. Now they couldn't actually alter their persona to bring it, scale it down to be small and truthful, which was required for television. But any any to any good actor, I mean, and, and I, sounds a bit arrogant, but I, I mean, anyone, anyone who's really acting, a, a truthful actor. It makes no difference which medium he's in. It's just a question of scale. Well, indeed, I, I remember seeing, talking, I met John Ryan briefly and also saw him interviewed, and he, he bemoaned his own performance in the Aztecs because he thought it was too big. But I thought if it hadn't been that, if he hadn't been that grotesque, mm. he wouldn't have been as palpable a villain. And I think John Ringham is fabulous in the Aztecs as the high priest. John Ringham was a very good television actor of all, all around. And, and I think the whole style of um, Doctor Who and the Aztecs was, was broad. It, it was melodramatic. It was, it was a very strong story. I think I was very dramatic and over the top, but not, not, that doesn't mean untruthful. I think that's where John's getting muddled up. He thinks, he thinks he's overacting. I think he possibly did pull a few faces. I don't know. Um, more, more than he, he, He'll know better than I know what he did that he wasn't very pleased about. Um, perhaps he didn't take it quite as seriously as he should have. Uh, so he camped it up a bit. And, um, I mean, I was certainly over the top, but uh, but I don't think that was untruthful over the top. I think it was still there was, there was that with the integrity of being real, uh, although the scale was quite large for television. Well, I, do, I, I always sometimes hold back from asking a question that you might possibly not remember the answer to. But then again, nothing. Measured. There's just something I noticed about your performance, and you're right because he is a braggart and a bully. He needs to be. There's a very I thought a very clever twist is that you you pronounce Ian's name. Ian, yeah. and as if it's an alien sound to you, which of course it would be, even though we're working through the TARDIS translation filter system or whatever, um, because we're not speaking Mexican. But I love those sort of little subtle choices that, that are made to suggest that everything's slightly alien, even though it's not a story about yeah. aliens. Or am I just talking absolute Tommy Rot? No, you're not talking Tommy Rot at all. And that, oddly enough, you've just made me realise, because I'd forgotten about that, but I've just done Doctor Who with Dark Eyes for a big finish on... Um, a sound, a sound CD, and again I meet Doctor Who and I meet his partner Molly, and I was calling her Molly because Molly was an alien sound to me, and I'd forgotten that. So it must be must be something in my psyche. <laughs> that's a tick. That's a, an actor's thing that you do when you're when you're meeting aliens. <laughs> um, and of course, the 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 title Alien um, in your Doctor Who was uh, was William Hartnell. Um, do you remember him? Oh, I remember him very, very well. And uh, I mean, I know there are stories about William Hartnell and uh, being being a bit scratchy. Well, he, he he could be, and he was. He got irritable if things went wrong, and he was got very cross with the technical side. Let let down the actors because, of course, uh, again, editing was a was a bad thing in those days. And so, if you, if you were doing a complicated scene and it went wrong, usually they went back to the beginning and you had to do it again. Now, for an actor of William Hartnell's age. Uh, that wasn't the easiest thing in the world because he was carrying an awful load. And so if it went wrong because of a technical reason, I mean, he, he, he always said there's no excuse for the technical side to go wrong. Um, uh, and I can echo that because I used to say, and say when I was a stage manager in the theatre, I, I used to say there's no excuse for the stage management getting it wrong. If they get it wrong, it's because they've lost concentration. They've, 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 they've missed it. They've missed the boat somewhere. Provided they've rehearsed it and it's all right, and technically the show is, is working, if something goes wrong, it's usually the, act, the, the, the stage manager's fault. 
Um, there's no excuse. An actor can forget their words. They can trip over the furniture. Things can go wrong on stage very, very easily because there's a, there's a nervousness about it, nervous tension. But stage management should be cool and collected and holding the whole thing together. And I think Bill felt like that about the technicians in television, which is a bit hard because they were, they were discovered. Television was pretty new in those days. I mean, they were actually mostly from the theatre or the film world and they were learning a new medium as well. So <laughs> he was a bit harsh there. Was there a sense of that when you were going to work in television? I mean, we like to romanticise it, especially you know, actors of my generation, this idea that when television was starting, it was this brave new world of constant discovery and innovation, or, or was it just work? No, no, I think it was a brave new world of innovation and, and experiment. Um, I, most of the people who worked, as I say, most of the people who worked in television, directors, writers, producers and actors, were, were theatre people. That's where they came from. And the early days of television was very much like theatre. If you did a play, you did the play as a continuous recording, if they, if they possibly could. Without, and the, the writers had to write the script like a stage play so that it flowed through and, and there was no, nobody had to stop to change costume and things like that. Nowadays, it's all written in little bits like a film. But, uh, so, so you were, it, it was very close to the theatre. You, you, you were doing a stage play but being filmed, doing it with three cameras. Um, so, I yeah, I don't think there was much difference. I was going to say something else, but I've forgotten what it was. Go away. That's right. <laughs> well, let's, let's, go via, let's go via a police station because, of course, <laughs> you, uh, you uh, enjoyed a long period as, uh, as a regular in Z cars. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and you left to, uh, in quite a shocking manner. You were gunned down. Mm. Um, I mean, does that sort of thing make you very known to the public where you sort of stopped in the street and have all that sort of thing happen to you? Well, again, you have to remember, in, in the days of Z cars, there were only two channels. There was ITV and there was BBC. So if you were in a successful BBC or ITV show, if you were in something like Z cars, which was very, very popular, you were being watched by 25 million people automatically. I mean, there, there, was, there was no competition. Um, and so, yes, we, Coronation Street, I remember, was, was the, sort of the other thing that everybody watched at that time. And an actor in Coronation Street, they became incredibly famous and well-known. And uh, the public would be very familiar with them, too, and slap them on the back and buy them a pint and that sort of thing, because, the, because it was Coronation Street. If you were working in something... Before I was in Z Cars, I was in Emergency Ward 10, which is another television series. <laughs> that was high TV. And I was playing a brain surgeon. And I used to go out with Bill Roach. Um, we were both young bloods together. And he was doing Coronation Street, and I was doing Emergency Ward 10. And if we went, in, went out for a drink, he would be surrounded by people slapping him on the back and saying, hey, Bill, have a pint. Come on, come on, Bill. Come and meet the missus and all that sort of stuff. And they'd be saying, Mr. Kent, would you, would you, <laughs> could we buy you a drink, Mr. Kent? And I was treated with great respect and hands off because I was a surgeon. <laughs> And um, when you were killed off in Z Cars, was that had you decided to leave, and also had you decided that you wanted to die? Were you happy to die? I wasn't happy to die. No, I didn't want to die. Actually, there was a change of producer, and, and I think he wanted to make a, a an impact. So, so I didn't I didn't leave entirely voluntarily. Um, they, they gave me they said the end of your contract. We will be disposing of you. Uh, and I said, well, please don't kill me. But, but they took no notice of that, and they did. At that time, I had a sort of vague superstition that it was bad luck to be killed off on television. But, of course, I've been killed many times since then, so it's, it's not so... I've got used to being killed. 
Well, and of course, another you had another famous killing. This is interesting because I've, I always follow Doctor Who actors and I'm always pleased. I always scour the Radio Times. I'm always happy when I see somebody from Doctor Who's working. Then when Channel 5 announced its new sitcom, Family Affairs, there you were, top of the billing. Uh, you, Ian, and I thought, oh, brilliant, Ian Cullen. And, and did, you, did you think then, because you talked about Bill Roach as well, who I've worked with in Corrie as well, who's perfectly happy having played you know, the same part for all that time. Did you, did you think with Family Affairs, do you know what, I, I might just see... I might just see this out now and stay. Or were you happy? Had you considered it a job that was going to go for a long time? Were you surprised when they came? And, 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 uh, and, and again, it was a new producer, wasn't it, who decided to kill off the focal family? Yeah. Uh, no, I was appalled. Uh, it was one of the worst decisions ever made in the history of television, I think. Um, it was an absolute idiot, the guy who came in and took it over. Uh, because we, we, all, we all started off with a two-year contract. And... Basically, yes, we assumed that it would, uh, if, it, if, it, if it did get itself established and it went on, that we, we, the family would stay, you know, we'd be part of a, uh, and I really did, I thought it would see me out, you know. But I, I knew eventually they'd have to kill me off because I was getting older and older. <coughs> but I thought I'd get a few years out of it. But then that lunatic Brian Park, I think it was a Brian yeah, Park? Yeah, he, yeah, he did yeah. the same at Coronation Street when he joined that. Yeah, self-styled, he used to call himself the Mad Axeman yeah. or something. And um, I mean, he was, he was insane. Uh, one of the few people in the business that I've met who I really do think was off his, tro- off his trolley completely. But he, he decided I mean, he decided to kill it off, kill everybody off. So he blew us all up in the boat. Um, I was having a crafty fag and I left the gas on. Uh, and it was very sad because very, Family Affairs was a very, very happy show. Probably my favourite of all the things I've done. It was beautifully organised I mean, and, and actually very well done. I think one critic said, you can see the shoestring, but it's rather sweet. And, and, and that's just about to say it was low budget, very low budget, uh, very fast turnaround. We were doing five episodes a week, which was unusual then. Uh, I think EastEnders did four, and Coronation Street did four, and we started doing five. And they sort of said, that's impossible. But because of the organisation, the Grundy organisation, the way the thing was set up, which I still admire, I'm still overwhelmed by the, the, the brilliance of it. And then that man came along and spoiled it all. So, as far as I was concerned. And eventually killed the whole thing off. So I hope somebody cuts the park down. <laughs> um, uh, and well, when you um, got in touch with me, you mentioned that, uh, obviously, yes, you'd worked with Ian Hartnell, but you've just done a Paul McGann, and you've worked with several doctors in between, but not on Doctor Who. So tell us about those. Tell you about them. I worked with... Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure... I'm, when, when you say worked... I, mean, I worked with Paul McGann recently, of course, in the uh, Dark Eyes, which I've yeah. already mentioned. Which, incidentally, I also get killed off. Oh. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> but that was all right. Um, but I, I, I knew Tom Baker quite well because when we filmed Zed Cars, he was in the next studio filming uh, Doctor Who. Yeah. And we, we, I mean, we didn't take it to be, to be apologetic, really. We didn't take it all. It was a children's television series, as far as we were concerned. We were doing grown-up drama. But we used to go into the studio and look at the sets and the Daleks and all the rest of it and have a great time. Used to go in and watch Tom Baker working, which was which was smashing. I mean, now with hindsight, wonderful memories. John Pertwee, I knew him more socially, BBC Club than. Uh, I don't think I ever worked with John Pertwee. I'm not, he may have done his Ed Cars or something. I don't think so. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I remember John. <laughs> first time I met John, he was wearing his uh, water rat, little gold Royal Order of Water Rats badge, of which he was very proud. I think he was president or something of it. And, uh, and I said to him, what does that mean? Does that mean you've been in the mousetrap? 
and <laughs> he was a bit upset. But then he came back and apologised. He said, "He said I was only upset because I couldn't think of anything witty to say." <laughs> In return. And um, you've done Doctor Who conventions, and uh, I'm sure you get uh, letters from fans, and you've done the DVD, and of course you've done a bit of Blake Seven, so I'm sure people ask you about that as well. But what I want to know is, is, is the something? You've had a long career, you've had lots of things that you've done, and probably many of them that people have never asked you about. So what would you like to talk about that you're perhaps particularly proud of or interested in that nobody's asked you until now? Well, one aspect of it, um, I, I'm not sure it's a question I've ever wanted to be asked, but one aspect of it that, that I think is, of, is often neglected is, is, the, is, is the fact that when you're working in a, in a theatre or television or a film or, 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 any, or radio, for that matter, um, although radio is usually quite brief, but if it's a longish run, then the people you're working with become a, a second family. And normally one gets very close to them because it's a, it's a reasonably happy atmosphere and you're not fighting with anybody. And after a few months, you really get to know people and you care about them and they care about you. And, and then the run comes to an end and you leave that family behind. And when I was younger, you, you always say, oh, I'll write to you, we'll keep in touch, I'll phone you. I'll... But then you never do. I mean, it's sort of, you move on to, to another family. But they're, they're all part of the memory and, and, and there are people going way back for whom I have a great affection that I worked with 30, 20, 40 years ago. And I'm sure everyone, ha everyone has the, the, the common experience of meeting someone who was an old friend, and you meet them after 20 years, and you just pick up where you left off. And, and acting is rather like that. The, the, the whole of acting becomes one big family. When, you, when you've worked with an awful lot of actors, and you know most of them, and you knew some of them very well, uh, that's your family. And go into another job, and there's always someone there that I knew, or I've worked with in the past, and you pick up where you left off. It's, it's, it's a, that's one of the nice things, the good, the, the, the upside of being in the theatre or being an, act, being an actor. And, of course, Doctor Who has its own family, and you've recently come back to the fold uh, with Big Finish. Which was very exciting, because, I mean, I'd heard of Big Finish, and um, for, quite a, for quite a long time I thought, why don't they... Why aren't I doing a big finish? <laughs> there was something wrong with my voice. Uh, but then eventually it, it did happen, and you know, when there was Nick Briggs, and uh, oh, great experience, beautifully done, um, very relaxed recording atmosphere, well organised, friendly, good food, um, plenty of time, no, 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 no feeling of being rushed or uh, or they were anxious about time. It was really a lovely, lovely working experience, and the end result, I, I listened to the. It was Big Finish, it was Dark Eyes. Dr. Who and Dark Eyes, it was called, I think it was, that was the title. And I was really astounded by the quality of it, how very, very good it is. And I think a clever chap, Nick Briggs, I mean, what, what he's done, what he's do, doing, um, and what he's doing for Doctor Who, of course, he's making it permanent. It'll last forever now. <laughs> he's going to like this when it lands in his inbox. And uh, a final thing, Ian, thank you for your time and, and for, for being so keen to take part. Um, uh, I, there's hopefully a few Doctor Who fans listening to this um, so one I would like uh, what is your message to Doctor Who fans on Doctor Who's 50th anniversary and two because you are not getting paid for this and I do not get paid for this and we do not charge for the podcast well, I would like you to nominate a charity that if anybody listening has enjoyed this if they give a quid no obligation but if they do we do something nice and then at least you get something for your time oh, that's brilliant the Great Ormond Street Hospital is uh, one of the charities that I support Children's Hospital and uh, if anything does come in, send it there, and that would be great. Uh, my message for the Doctor Who fans is keep on coming, because you, you, 
you're actually very precious because I think, what, I think the whole Doctor Who phenomenon is, is, is a plus in our society. And I think to be handing something on from generation to generation the way Doctor Who has been handed on and to see the small children coming along to the conventions uh, with, with their great-grandfathers <laughs> um, is, is actually very exciting. It's also rather heart heartwarming in a world where most things are disposable. Doctor Who continues. I'll tell you that's Ian Cullen. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Uh, my thanks to Ian, uh, who actually got in touch with me online, and then I thought uh, I really dived into that interview and uh, gave some good chat, and of course nominated Great Ormond Street Hospital. If you could go over and donate a couple of quid to, that would be really nice. No obligation. We're just trying to do a good thing here uh, in terms of providing something interesting to Doctor Who fans and maybe raising a little bit of money. But mm, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So long as this is just something we can do and all enjoy. Hey, Doctor Who fans, can we just all enjoy enjoy this? That'd be nice. Now, I thought I had an unbroken run of Hartnell, as I'm due to meet a couple of beflippered bad guys later in the week. But then last night, listeners, I had a rather curious flurry of tweets and emails from a very illustrious thesp, who I never thought in a million years would agree to do something like this. And guess what? He's agreed to do something like this. And in 48 hours' time, at his house. Shiver me timbers. Um, I'm going to the house of a famous actor to quiz him about a Doctor Who story that, um, if I'm honest, is not anywhere near the top of anyone's favourite story list. Wish me luck. I will hopefully see you soon. They may be made of metal, they may shriek like the sound of tearing flesh in a nightmare, but they are just creatures like us, and all creatures can die and be defeated. My name is Ian Cullen and I'm playing Nardian in Doctor Who and Dark Eyes. Do you have a plan? No, just hope uh, that. I met a guy called Oliver Crocker, who's a great Doctor Who fan, mm -hmm. and he's been saying, you must do a big finish. And I think, in fact, he sent an email in my name in the first place. Um, he said, I'll send them an email. So I kept on emailing and saying, when am I going to do one? You know, because I said, yes. I can't believe I hadn't done one all these years. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are now. And here I am now, now doing it, thoroughly enjoying promise? it. Has it lived up to the promise? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Great fun. Yeah. Good fortune to you, Doctor. Molly. Perhaps we may meet again. It's great to put the costume on for anything, because it's half the it's half the leap, you know. It's the imaginative leap, you know. And uh, but yeah, so uh, I hope one day there'll be you know good cause for me to. I hope they get me back in in, in the shoes and the trousers and uh, in the costume and let me have another go, even if it's only brief, you know. It'd be nice to it'd be nice to get back in costume and and, uh, and do it all again. Yeah. Doctor Who. Dark Eyes. My odyssey has taken me through all eternity and beyond. My consciousness exists outside of time. Exterminate! Run, Molly! Run! Take my hand. No, 
This is all mad. Just madness. Now listen, Molly, this is going to be really difficult for me to explain, mainly because I don't really have a clue what's going on myself. You've not got all the answers then, the doctor. Not by a long shot. But isn't it obvious that those things, the Daleks, are intent on doing us some serious harm? <laughs> I know, no time for all that. The destruction of the Time Lords will be achieved. No problem, friend. One would think you had TARDISes materializing here every day. I don't have a clue who you really are. All I know is that you think you're saving me, but you don't know why. Is that about the size of it? Well... And that you call yourself The Doctor, which sounds like a 10th-rate stage name to me. Never you mind. Take a left here, cabby. No entry, mate. <laughs> Commit a traffic offence or get blown up. I'll leave the choice to you. Hang on! I'm going to call you Dark Eyes. Are you looking for a punch on the nose? So you've been here before. You wouldn't consider killing me, would you? Molly, this is 1940. 1940? What do you mean? I told you the TARDIS is a time machine. 1940? It's true. You did say something of the kind. This is it. Strikes us old boy. This'll be one for the history books. All right. I get it. You're fighting a war against these Daleks. I don't want to be fighting a war. And it's getting you down. I understand that. But it doesn't mean you should give up. Doesn't it? Doctor, you will be exterminated. I know. No, we haven't discovered time travel. But we've discovered a time traveler. Who? Him. The doctor. What do you mean? You can take this thing anywhere in history. Anywhere in the world. And beyond? Beyond the world? What? You mean, like the moon and the sun? 